Thompson, a researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. The Australian government regularly expresses concern about territorial disputes in the South China Sea and China's militarisation of disputed features there. But what is the Australian government doing about it and has it been effective? Today I'm joined by Andrew Chubb, who has recently written a policy brief for the think tank China Matters, entitled, Is There a Problem with Australia's South China Sea Policy? Andrew is a postdoctoral fellow in the Columbia Harvard China and the World program and a fellow of the Perth US Asia Centre. Welcome to the program, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Simone. In your policy brief, you open up by arguing that Canberra's current South China Sea policy needs an update. Why do you say this? Uh, well, the number one reason is really that the uncertainties have increased a lot, um, particularly with the advent of the Trump administration. So the trade war is likely to lead to less interdependence, and interdependence is a disincentive to conflict, and particularly has been over the past 10 years uh, of fairly intense frictions in the South China Sea since China changed to a more assertive policy there. Um, so as that declines, uh, the risks of conflict may go up. There's also the president's sort of inexperience in foreign policy, and particularly in handling crises. Um, his personal unpredictability, it seems, the domestic difficulties that he faces in terms of being under investigation for some uh, potentially pretty serious crimes. Um, and it seems from his recent performance that he may believe that there's actually votes in kind of muscling up to China. And obviously most presidential candidates have talked tough on the campaign trail, but this is, I think, far more mm. dangerous. Um, so the risks of conflict, I think, are probably on the rise, and Australia needs to make sure that it preserves its ability to make choices in its own interest and to contribute to the, to the well-being of the region. Um, and, that, and that includes standing up for international rules against China's sometimes flagrant violations of them, which we're now in a much better position to do, having finally seen the light and, and settled our own maritime dispute with Timor-Leste, rather than continuing to play dirty and bully our smaller neighbour um, in a way sort of um, that's quite familiar to South China Sea watchers. Um, but also aligning ourselves quite conspicuously with other countries in the region rather than just our ally, the US, which under Donald Trump could actually become a source of trouble rather than being the stabilising force that I think it's generally been in recent decades since, since it last made trouble in the Vietnam War. Um, so that's one reason uh, the uncertainties have increased. Uh, another reason is that at present there's, I think, some unnecessary daylight between Australia's own verbal statements on the South China Sea and those of the rest of the region, um, particularly on China's activities in recent years where we substantively agree with the position of the rest of the region, but we're not quite highlighting that as, as prominently as we might. Um, one example is, as of the 2017 White Paper, uh, we were still calling for a halt to land reclamation, when in reality that, that ship has sailed, um, so mm -hmm. to speak. It's, uh, you know, China had finished reclaiming those massive islands by the end of 2016, so instead what we should be doing is echoing ASEAN in drawing attention to the negative consequences of what China has done. Uh, in terms of uh, land reclamations, um, increasing tensions and uh, um, decreasing um, mutual trust in the region, I think is their wording. Um, another example was saying that we oppose the use of disputed reefs and islands for military purposes, but this has always been the case on all sides. Uh, so 
we'd probably be better off echoing the ASEAN line in opposing militarization, that is, new increases in military deployments to the disputed areas, and echoing the ASEAN line on those particular points where we actually substantively already agree, it doesn't mean that we can't go beyond it and make further comments, like calling the arbitration decision binding or things, other things that ASEAN hasn't been willing to say, but on those points where the substantive position is the same, then we should make our language conspicuously the same. So, And then the third reason that I think the policy of Australia needs an update is that I don't think there's nearly enough coordination of South China Sea policy with other countries in the region, like particularly Indonesia and Singapore that share very similar sets of interests there to us, uh, potentially even more similar interests, sort of more similar sets of interests um, uh, with us than, than the US, which now has this trade war that we don't share an interest in at all. So those, those would be the three main reasons why I think Australia's South China Sea policy needs an update. I might ask you to just talk a bit more about the role of ASEAN. So you mentioned the importance of Australia coordinating um, with ASEAN. What role does ASEAN play in all of this discussion on the South China Sea? Does ASEAN actually have a consensus on what to do about China's activities there, or is there still quite a bit of debate? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, One of the points that I make in the China Matters brief is that while China typically dismisses criticisms of its own conduct from from the US and from allies like Australia as being merely ill-intentioned propaganda, it actually takes the united voice of the region as encapsulated in ASEAN's fairly low low level or lowest common denominator statements. Beijing takes those statements much more seriously. Mm. They really don't like being criticised by ASEAN. It's, It's a loss of face on the one hand, but I think maybe more importantly, it's also a suggestion or a kind of implied threat of China's sort of nightmare scenario of being isolated in its own region. Um, and we saw that in the case of the, the Haiyang Shuil 981 oil rig, that massive oil rig that China moved into disputed waters in 2014. And in that case, the ASEAN foreign ministers responded with a pretty, by ASEAN standards, it was a pretty sharp statement uh, expressing serious concerns about developments that have increased tensions. Um, It didn't even criticise China by name, and it was dismissed by many in the media as yet another ineffectual response Mm -hmm. to a Chinese provocation. But actually, China got that message loud and clear. It found it very worrying that ASEAN was willing to make a special statement at all. Uh, It pulled the rig out early, and it made some diplomatic concessions subsequently regarding uh, ASEAN's role in maintaining stability in the South China Sea. Uh, another example, I think, was ASEAN's response to the 2016 uh, UNCLOS arbitration decision. But English language commentators were very disappointed that the ASEAN foreign ministers meeting that came right after the arbitration decision was announced didn't publicly support the ruling um, explicitly. But what it did do it was it called for uh, uh, full respect for legal and the diplomatic processes right up front in the second paragraph of the statement that they released from uh, their, their, their meeting, um, that was very unusual. The South China Sea is usually discussed in sort of 150 paragraphs down in those ASEAN statements. Um, so, in fact, this, this conveyed precisely that message to China, uh, that ASEAN, the ASEAN members generally support the UNCLOS and that they want China to respect it. Um, 
This year we've seen the return of the language calling for non-militarisation of the South China Sea, I think in part due to China's deployment um, of, of those uh, service-to-air missiles, power projection capabilities, earlier in the year. So China knows where ASEAN stands on that too. Uh, and I think too often the, the power of this kind of very subtle region-wide consensus criticism of China gets mistaken for kind of a weak and watery lowest common denominator when they're actually a, a form of leverage with Beijing that shouldn't be underestimated. And, and that, that's why I'm suggesting that Australia could, could line up behind that uh, more explicitly. Um, as for whether there's a consensus on what to do about China's activities as opposed to what to say, uh, I think there's a tacit consensus to generally play nice when China is playing nice itself. Uh, and that often appears unwise to uh, Western observers uh, who are more in favour of, of uh, you know, confronting China. Um, but there's also a broad consensus that, that some level of uh, third country freedom of navigation patrolling is warranted. Um, ASEAN statements routinely allude to support for explicitly using the language of freedom of navigation and overflight. Uh, so, so that strongly suggests that um, some level of freedom of navigation patrolling is welcome as a matter of consensus among the ASEAN countries. Um, there are some signs that, that some within the ASEAN sort of feel that the Trump administration's increased tempo of South China Sea patrols, um, particularly in the context of his overall more confrontational stance towards China, is actually unhelpful. Um, I tried to get at that with some questions at, at a recent conference I attended in Vietnam, and no one's really buying in on uh, sort of speculating on what exactly the appropriate level of patrolling is. But I think everyone in the region wants the South China Sea to remain an international waterway so in that sense, you could say that there's a consensus in favour of having some level of freedom of navigation patrolling by uh, non-claimant countries. They don't want a provocation. So is there any evidence that what you've just described about uh, what ASEAN says and does um, in reaction to China's activities in the South China Sea having an actual effect on the ground on China's behaviour. So you mentioned that China frequently dismisses criticism, whether it's in um, ASEAN statements or in statements by uh, other countries. Um, is it actually changing any of its behaviour? That's a really interesting question, and there's a, there's a major challenge there because we're sort of talking about a form of, of deterrence here, um, and when deterrence is successful the evidence is always silent because mm. the, the result is uh, something that China didn't do that it might otherwise have done. Um, so we can speculate. I mean, I mentioned the, the Hayamshiel 981 uh, oil rig fiasco in 2014. I, I think there's no doubt that, that China was um, uh, sort of chastened by the reaction of the region to its actions there, and we haven't seen a repeat of that. Um, there's been talk of potential air defence identification zone in the South China Sea. Um, that hasn't happened so far. Um, there was at one point a couple of years ago, there was talk of uh, potential Spratly Island baseline declaration, uh, maybe in as part of China's response to the arbitration decision. Um, and that also hasn't happened. Uh, but I wouldn't want to overstate the kind of uh, effects because there's, there's really no way to sort of prove it. What we do know, though, is that 
these kind of consensus level, uh, what appear to be, uh, at least in a, in a sort of English language uh, discourse, to be kind of some kind of fairly weak and watery statements, um, make Beijing very uncomfortable. Mm. They don't want any level of criticism from ASEAN. The US, like you mentioned before, frequently conducts freedom of navigation operations, um, and it's on occasion encouraged Australia to join US phone ops as well. Um, and other claimant states, of course, conduct their own joint exercises. So what do you think Australia could do to deter future, future militarization of features in the South China Sea? What kind of leverage does Australia have uh, versus ASEAN and the US? What can it bring to the table that these other players can't? Well, one thing we can do is to make very clear to China that we reserve the right to conduct further types of freedom of navigation um, in, or further types of navigation in the South China Sea that any country is allowed to do under international law um, if we see the circumstances as requiring it. And especially if we're kind of invited to do so or encouraged to do so by other countries in the region. Um, Australia is probably not well known. Um, I outlined this in the China Matters Policy Brief as well, but Australia already conducts one kind of freedom of navigation assertion using airplanes uh, flying uh, surveillance flights mm. out of Borneo. Um, out, they stay outside, as far as we know, they stay outside of the 12 nautical mile territorial sea limit of any land feature there. But that means that it leaves open various other options that Australia could take um, to sort of upgrade its level of, uh, of, of navigation assertions. They could send ships to do the same thing on a similar sort of pattern of patrolling as, as France has done recently, um, or they could transit through the territorial seas around one or more of the islands there. Um, that's one type of freedom of navigation operation that the U.S. Uh, conducts quite frequently. Or they could even conduct sort of operations in areas where no territorial sea can exist under international law, such as near China's outpost uh, at Mischief Reef, which is actually illegal following the, the 2016 tribunal ruling, uh, which affirmed that, that Mischief Reef was not a land feature and, and therefore couldn't have a territorial sea. So I think that kind of option of upgrading Australia's patrolling presence um, in accordance with the letter of, of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea could be appropriate in, a, in at least a couple of different scenarios. Um, the, the, the possibility of an air defence identification zone or a baseline enclosing the Spratly Islands, so a claim of territorial seas around the whole Spratly archipelago or large parts of it, um, that would be one scenario uh, in which Australia, I think, um, could you know, quite possibly respond to that by upgrading its patrolling activities. Um, further militarisation, deploying of, of fighter jets or other sort of power projection capabilities like the, like the missiles that were deployed earlier this year. Um, no one in the region wants to see that, and if Beijing does it, then it's likely that other countries, I think, uh, would welcome Australia demonstrating some support for the rules which actually do, as I say, exist in this area of international politics. The, the INCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, is a, it's a formal codified document that China and everyone else has signed, everyone, everyone basically except for the US. Um, so these are agreed upon international rules, not simply the US dictating what goes on or setting the rules. 
very hard for China to argue that uh, the UNCLOS is simply an instrument of American power when America hasn't even signed it. Um, so I think Australia has some credibility in being able to tell Beijing that if they do those kinds of things, um, Spratly baselines and, and air defence notification zones, further militarisation, um, but there, there may very well be consequences in terms of an upgraded Australian presence. That would be welcomed by the region as well. Um, but one thing I think we need to be clear about ourselves is that there's really no advantage to doing that kind of thing in concert with the US. It's only really going to look provocative. It's going to allow China to claim that the US and its deputy sheriff are out of touch with the region. Um, so if we do it, I mean, it's fully backed by international law, as I mentioned. Either we should do it by ourselves, as we do already with those, those Operation Gateway flights that I mentioned earlier, um, or perhaps under certain circumstances it could be done with other countries in the region like Singapore or Indonesia, uh, but not, not with the US or one of the states with territorial claims there, um, I think. So I, th I think that's Australia's main bit of leverage, uh, the fact that it clearly has the right to do more there under international law, uh, and the fact that um, under those circumstances it would probably be widely welcomed around the region. I think Australia needs to, to remind China that that's a possibility. And do you think in the current climate with, you know, the Trump administration and uncertainty around uh, China's intentions that the Australian government is actually likely to take up this recommendation? Well, as I mentioned, I think it depends on the circumstances. Um, uh, in the China Matters brief, I wasn't calling for uh, an immediate uh, stepping up of Australian patrolling. Um, precisely for the reason that you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, it's it's a rare point of leverage uh, for Australia. Um, as long as it's made clear to Beijing um, that Australia might do this, and that and that Australia has the capability to, and that it would, um, you know, under the circumstances that we're considering doing it, it would be widely supported around the region as well as being completely. Uh, in accordance with the uh, overwhelming majority of uh, the world's nation-states' views of what the law of the sea is. Um, so so I, I, I'm not recommending that Australia just simply do this unilaterally, because I think, um, as I mentioned before, I think it's a, a valuable um, piece of leverage mm -hmm. that Australia has. Do you have any other recommendations for what Australia could do? What are the risks associated uh, with some of the some of the policy recommendations in your China Matters brief? So, well, we've mentioned lining up the diplomatic language with ASEAN, um, coordinating better with countries like Indonesia. Uh, Linda Jakobsen of China Matters has, has recommended, uh, Linda and, and Bates Gill in their book, recommend setting up a working level group um, with uh, to coordinate China policy with Indonesia. Um, that's obviously been set back recently by drawn-out speculation about potentially moving the embassy yeah. uh, in Israel to Jerusalem. My paper also recommends keeping up the pressure on China to clarify the nine-dash line. But Beijing sees the, the ambiguity of the nine-dash line as beneficial overall, uh, but really the region will never trust China while it keeps open this possibility that it's actually claiming the whole sea. So I think one of the tasks of countries like Australia is to keep up the pressure in the hope that eventually China recognises the costs to be outweighing the benefits. Um, and also it's worth pointing out, uh, 
you know, and constantly reiterating, I think, to Beijing that clarifying the nine dash line doesn't involve dropping the nine dash line. So if they push back with the argument that, uh, you know, the domestic audience would wouldn't would, would never be able to accept us walking away from the nine dash line, um, well, that's 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 probably true. Uh, the thing is to clarify the nine dash line and to reassure the region of the limitations of, of what they're claiming uh, doesn't require walking away from the nine dash line. Um, they can maintain uh, they can maintain the claim to the islands within, which is of course the, the original meaning of the nine dash line map. Um, so besides that, I think we we also, I don't think there's a particularly great risk involved um, in in that in keeping up the diplomatic pressure over the nine dash line. You know, China is well aware that the rest of the region uh, also have similar concerns. So I don't think it does any harm to continuously remind them of that. I think also another a largely costless recommendation or fairly low cost recommendation is that I think we need to do sort of more simulations and tabletop exercises um, within government on a, on a wider range of South China Sea scenarios. So including, I think, what we do if and you know, not to not to put too fine a point of it, but if, if Donald Trump starts a war, I think we need to figure out uh, how we handle that kind of a situation. Obviously, uh, it's very unlikely to be in Australia's interests to get involved in that kind of a scenario. However, there's, I think, a range of other scenarios in which, for, for example, responding to some kind of act of uh, obvious aggression on the part of China against one of its neighbours and, and the rest of the region is is sort of looking to put together a multilateral response. I think Australia, um, you know, would do well to very, very carefully consider taking part in, in that kind of a scenario. Um, and, of course, there's a whole range of circumstances in between that. I'm not privy to, to what the, defense, uh, the Department of Defence is already doing on this front, but there are some pretty cool innovations going on in this area from research psychologists and from political scientists that I know which I think this type of thing could benefit from. So if any uh, relevant people are, are interested, I'd welcome them to, to get in touch on that. Um, another suggestion that I heard at the recent conference in Vietnam was, this is a real piece of low-hanging fruit, I think, is uh, a joint fisheries management scheme for Scarborough Shoal, where the arbitral tribunal affirmed the existing reality, really, which is that Philippines, Vietnamese and Chinese fishermen all have the right to fish there under international law. They have traditional fishing rights, um, which the, the tribunal ruled out into, uh, the idea of international uh, traditional fishing rights in the exclusive economic zone, but it affirmed the existence of traditional fishing rights in the territorial seas around land features, um, and particularly that all of those claimant countries uh, have the right to fish uh, around Scarborough Shoal. So I think that's a real possibility uh, there that they... Um, could, could develop some kind of joint fisheries management scheme, which would be uh, quite a good confidence-building measure. Thanks so much, Andrew, for joining us today to discuss your China Matters policy brief. Is there a problem with Australia's South China Sea policy? I think there's certainly a lot for uh, scholars and policymakers to consider, so thanks for your contribution. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the Acri podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about Acri's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, 
at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.